Hello, and a very warm welcome to the LSEG Sustainable Growth Podcast, where we talk to leading experts about topics that cross over sustainability and finance. I'm your host, Jane Goodland, and this week I had the honour of talking to David Atkin, CEO of the UN-supported Principles for Responsible Investment, perhaps better known as the PRI, which is the world's leading proponent of responsible investment. Before taking the helm of PRI in 2021, David led large asset owners such as CBUS, which is one of Australia's largest industry superannuation funds. But he's no stranger to PRI as he served as a non-executive director on the board of PRI from 2009 to 2015. But before we listen to the conversation, a quick reminder to follow us so you don't miss any future episodes. And also don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any other platform you use. Right, let's get into the conversation and hear what David had to say. So hello, David. Thank you so much for coming and joining us on the LSEG Sustainable Growth Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you, Jane. Terrific to uh, to join you. Right. So let's get started, because uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is uh, your second stint with PRI, because in fact, you were uh, on the board as a non-executive director when PRI was a lot younger, I must say, back in 2009 through to 2015. So my question to you is, what drew you back to PRI in your current role now? And also, what have you been up to in between? So yes, it's been fascinating to come back to the PRI and see how it's grown and become such a part of the industry. If you'd said to us in the early days, the PRI would become so significant in the investment community, we would have said you were dreaming. But um, we are where we are now. And what drew me back was really, I mean, I've always seen as an important part of my role is leading teams, leading organizations through change. And I've always had a strong interest in the whole responsible investment ESG sustainable finance space. And so the remit of this job is to ensure that the PRI stays relevant to our signatories as we move into our next phase of work. We've got a whole lot of resources internally that we are working with as we identify what we need to do to, to stay relevant. And so for me, it was a perfect combination of my subject area interest and also my expertise as a CEO, taking organizations through growth and change and making sure that the organization stays successful as it continues to demonstrate value to its membership base. So for me, those things came together in this opportunity. But you've been at uh, superannuation schemes in the interim, right? Yes. So I've spent 25 years working in the pension world in Australia, superannuation industry, uh, leading as CEOs in three different organizations, primarily with CBUS, which is the Construction and Building Super Fund, for 13 years. And I also had a short stint as a deputy CEO of um, AMP Capital, uh, so an asset manager. So again, a good blend of experience between uh, in an asset owner environment, but also in an asset manager listed environment. So I think that's relevant coming into this job, given that that's part of the breadth of our membership base. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got thousands and thousands of of kind of supporters and signatories now, and many of those are indeed asset owners and the investment managers that they work with. So PRI was launched about 18 years ago, based on my, my kind of rudimentary maths, launched in 2006. And as you mentioned, it's been incredibly successful. 
when you think about kind of how it's become so synonymous with the investor movement around uh, responsible investment. And also, I mean, you can give me some latest figures, I guess, on, on the membership size, but why has it got so much support from the investor community? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it, it, it has been a bottom-up response from the investment community who've recognized increasingly that when it comes to thinking about risk and value creation, there's a whole lot of information that hasn't been available to investors. And these are around environmental, social and governance um, factors. And so we've seen this bottom-up response from the investment community that said, no, 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 it's really important that we understand these externalities. We understand these issues that are not presently on the balance sheet, but eventually do get onto the balance sheet. Increasingly, they are being seen to be on the balance sheet. And so by taking a broader view about what creates value and what creates risk, then investors are in a better position to be able to serve their particular constituencies. So that idea has continued to resonate as we have started to see the impact of climate change and as we start to see social dislocation and as we've started to see more and more examples of poor governance or good governance that is um, value enhancing. And so we've now got to a point where over almost five and a half thousand signatories around the world, 100 countries that we uh, have signatories in, have signed up to the principles. Uh, it's about 120, 130 US trillion. And that's more than half the institutional capital in the world that have signed up to the, the six principles. And it's not a fad because uh, the, the, the industry would have moved on to other things by now if, if this thematic was not seen to resonate. I think what we've begun to understand is as we've got more and more into it, we've recognized the complexity, but also that um, there is a lot of work to be done because effectively what we're doing in the industry is replumbing the way finance works. We're reimagining the balance sheet. We've identified that there's a whole lot of, as I said, externalities not on the balance sheet. And so we need new frameworks, new information, new ways of thinking to be able to better capture that information so that investors can make better decisions for their respective consumer bases. And I think one of the things that's, that's particularly impressive is the fact that the PRI has been going for 18 years and the principles are still as they were drafted in the very first launch, which is really quite incredible when you think about how much has changed in that period of time. So, you know, I think obviously they were drafted with a very clear mandate in mind, with a clear audience in mind, with fiduciary duty very much baked in absolutely at the very heart of what they're trying to achieve. And it really has stood the test of time because they remain unchanged and they they remain very relevant to today, don't they? So, I mean, it's really impressive. Those numbers you shared in terms of the membership and the assets that they represent, it's huge. No, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think those early leaders that did the work, we have a lot to thank for because it's been enduring, as you say. And now that's not to, that's not to say that the world hasn't changed, and the and the environment that we're operating in is very much more um, complex. And but the basic ideas of fiduciary responsibility, as you say, but understanding risk better and understanding the issues that actually create value or destroy value across the ESG spectrum remain as valid as they were in two thousand and six when the when the principles were launched. So you, you mentioned, obviously, that the world has changed, and, and yes, indeed it has. Let's think about that for a, for a moment from what the world was like, the investment world was like in 2006 when 
the PRI were first launched with the backing of the United Nations to now, very, very different situations. But how how can you sum up that change? And from your perspective, looking back over that 18-year period, what are the key differentiators between the beginning and where we are today? And why does responsible investment play an important part in it? Yeah. So look, I think the um, this was initially a niche idea, a niche part of the industry. And what we've seen, however, is that increasingly every year as more and more asset owners and more and more asset managers start to apply the, the approach of integrating ESG into their investment decision-making processes, they've seen the value and they've, they've gone deeper and deeper into issues. So sort of moving, I mean, in a way, it's sort of st- it started with governance. Well, certainly from my experience in the Australian context, I mean, what really brought investors into this space was the value destruction from the shareholder from a lot of the corporate collapses around the turn of the century, where it was clear that there was a misalignment between shareholder needs and uh, the way the companies, particular companies were being run. And so that led to investors should have more of a say, more of a voice, be engaging more with companies about what was good governance. And now we've seen moving into uh, into the e-space very strongly, climate being the most clear and obvious, but now into into the nature and biodiversity piece, but also recognizing that, you know, if you're thinking about social license issues to operate, this is often a very important issue for companies that they get blindsided on. And it's important that companies understand their place in communities and they don't lose their social license to operate. And there are many examples where that has occurred. So increasingly, we've become more and more sophisticated better uh, information. But what we've also seen is, in addition to this bottom-up thematic from from the investment community, we've now started to see top-down architecture being put in place by regulators. Because it's now effectively mainstream, it's quite reasonable that uh, regulators around the world are wanting to make sure that there is appropriate architecture in place to ensure that claims people are making are accurate and correct. But also increasingly, we're seeing governments and policymakers understand that capital has a very important role to play to deal with these broader systemic risk issues. I think that's probably the other thing that I would say is that we've got a much better understanding about system risk now than we did 20 years ago. And we've got a lot of work to do, but I think we've joined the dots. And I think there is a clear pathway for investors to work with regulators and the community to address these systemic risks and make sure we're protecting the value that we create for our various beneficiaries. So let's talk about regulation, as you just mentioned. And we're seeing much, much more regulation coming to this space from product labeling, disclosure, taxonomy, you know, you name it, let's go on. But given that PRI is a voluntary initiative, investor-led, and really trying to, I guess, kind of drive best practice... Is there an inbuilt tension between what you guys are trying to do and then the introduction of regulation, which which has you know varying degrees of success, shall we say, and works at a different pace, perhaps that voluntary organisations or voluntary initiatives like your yours um, have? So how how do those two things kind of work together, or 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 not? Look, there is a tension there. There's no doubt about that. And you know, there's always this concern about over over regulation uh, or under regulation, and so getting the balance right is not easy. 
It's certainly true that the we're operating in a system that codifies the way we all work, how we create trust in the community, that information that's in front of them is understood and accepted. Uh, and so as we've started to identify that there's missing information, it's important, therefore, to make sure that there is a flaw put in place around comparability around these systemic risk issues, for example, and that there's comparability between companies and industries around how they've identified E, S, and G issues in the way they then uh, make decisions. So the PRI has got a really interesting role to play here because, I mean, the, so, so we recognize that it's completely reasonable that regulators are wanting to step in and make sure that there is appropriate rules for our part of the industry. Greenwashing is partly, you know, part of, part of that focus. But at the same time, it's also important to recognise that regulators and policymakers don't necessarily understand how the investment world works. And so sometimes policies are poorly constructed because they don't understand the problem, or sometimes it's poorly constructed because they don't understand the practitioner's perspective and actually implementation, how to implement something. So the PRI's got a very important role to play here to bring a practitioner's perspective in the formulation of this regulation. And we've got the advantage because we operate globally that we can identify best practice. We can identify where it hasn't worked as well because there hasn't been a proper conversation or proper feedback provided by signatories or by investors. And increasingly, as we work with our signatories, they say the policy is one of the most important roles that the PRI can play to bring that international perspective, but to bring that practitioner's perspective. And the other thing that I would say, however, is that we also need to be careful that in the as regulation is put in place, that it doesn't stifle innovation and it doesn't stifle learning. Now, there is a difference between mis-selling a product and a product that fails because, you know, um, you know, we didn't quite, you didn't, you didn't quite work it out correctly. But I worry that some of the regulation is so focused on sort of the greenwashing aspect that investors are now begun, beginning to get reluctant to try new things because they don't want to be caught out. But I think, this, as I said, there's a difference between deliberately mis-selling with a product that fails. And it's through failure that we learn and that we innovate. And there's still a lot of innovation that's required in our industry uh, for us to kind of um, successfully achieve our objectives. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're certainly uh, not out of uh, a to-do list, right, in the uh, sustainable and responsible investment field. There's still much, much more to do. So let's talk about that a bit. You're in the last year of PRI's strategic plan, which is from running from 21 through to 24. So tell me about what some of the key focus areas have been over that period, because that's obviously under your tenure. What have been the key things that you've been up to? Yeah, part, part of my tenure, but... Um... The, the sort of three key aspects of the, the last three years has been around responsible investment, sustainable markets, and a prosperous world for all. And so in responsible uh, the responsible investment space, we've been continuing to provide tools, case studies, best practice, a range of ways in which we've helped individual institutions become better responsible investors. On sustainable markets, we've identified that there needs to be improve policy settings to enable uh, addressing issues like climate change and um, just transition issues increasingly now. 
nature. We've been focusing on ESG incorporation uh, into financial policy regulation. And Prosperous World for All, again, is coming back to the actual issues that are impacting the world. So again, climate, nature, human rights, and having specific initiatives around stewardship that enable signatories to work together on common areas of interest to seek to influence companies uh, around those sustainability issues. So they've sort of, they've, they, that's the sort of broad framework, Jane, that we've been working on in the last three-year strategy plan. And so... In terms of thinking about kind of how things have changed even just over the last three years, obviously your signatory base has gone up and and responsible investing has become very much more mainstream, if you like. So what's the role of PRI now? So what's what are you thinking about your key focus should be? Really good question. And I mean, look, I've, I've been in the job for two years. And in that two years, the world's changed incredibly. I mean, we've had a the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've had a cost of living crisis, energy crisis. Um, we've had uh, increasing evidence of the world's climate changing and the social dislocation. So the geopolitical environment is a lot more uh, complex. We've seen the anti-ESG politicization in the US, um, although pleasingly, I'd say that's pretty much contained to the US, although it's obviously something that we it's a watching brief for us. Also, though, for us, the issue, the challenge for us is we subscribe to a big tent approach, which is that we want signatories to be able to begin their learning curve to become better responsible investors. And so with five, five and a half thousand signatories, how do we do that? What we've learned is that people love the idea of the PRI being this global organization that is a depository of knowledge, this experience that you can tap into, this con- you know, the convening power of the PRI, this network. But at the same time, they've said to us, the PRI needs to better understand that the local context in which signatories work in matters, that it will determine their priorities. So what investors will be working on in, say, Japan will be different to Latin America, which will be different to the UK, et cetera, et cetera. So the PRI needs to better tailor our programs of work around regions and their, and their needs. We've also seen, I think, an interesting shift, and we, we did a changing world consultation with our signatories over the last 18 months, which was very deep. And one of, one of the things that we asked people was, how would they describe themselves as responsible investors? And we gave three different definitions. The first was around integrating ESG risks into your investment processes. The second was around doing that, but taking, uh, identifying sustainability outcomes. And the third was doing those two things, but taking action on sustainability outcomes. And what we've uh, what we saw from the results was that it was 30, 30, 40%. So 40% believing taking action on sustainability outcomes is what being a responsible investor is. We then asked that question based on the future. What do you think it will become? And it went from 40% to 60%. And for asset owners, it was 70%. So there's a couple of things about that. One is the PRI, the signatory base, have different views about what being a responsible investor means, and we need to support each of those different approaches. But also it tells us that uh, taking action on sustainability outcomes is increasingly being seen as part of your fiduciary responsibility as investors, and so we need to make sure that we are supporting that shift as well. And David, can I just can I just jump in? When you say taking action on on sustainability outcomes, what do you mean by that? 
so you know if you for example if climate if we, if you viewed climate as being an important material risk to your ability to deliver returns well first of all yes you need to start being able to mitigate that risk but if you think that also the way you invest can actually assist you meet returns but also address the system that systemic risk then you're more deliberative in looking for opportunities for you to invest in the climate transition to enable the economy to transition. So it's being more deliberative in the way in which you invest, not just from a risk point of view, but from an opportunity perspective. So that that's probably the best example to give. Exactly. So, and, and I should imagine also that includes not only sort of your investment strategy in a proactive sense, but also potentially if you're if you're an equity investor, then thinking about engagement with companies as well, right? Correct. And there are a series of initiatives that the PRI is involved with, which brings signatories together to work on that sort of engagement, that stewardship. So when we shared responsibility with other network partners, Climate Action 100 uh, is the perfect example. Advance, uh, which is our human rights uh, engagement collaboration, and Spring, which is our nature our most recently launched uh, initiative, which is which brings signatories together to engage with companies on nature and biodiversity. So that's that's one of the things that's uh, very important about the PRI's its ability to bring signatories together to engage with companies to try and influence companies in the way that they perform and and um, and provide value to to shareholders. So, David, thinking forwards uh, beyond today, um, I know that you are are looking to set out your next three-year plan. I think it's three-year plan, right? So, tell me a bit more about that. What will be the focus of that and when will we see it? We've been doing a lot of work with our signatories over the last 18 months to better understand their needs in a changing world. And, you know, some of the things we heard around that was that the PRI is, plays a very important role bringing that, this global knowledge base together but we need to better understand the local needs of signatories and be able to prioritise those local needs better. We need to recognise that the reporting requirements are changing. We're seeing more and more mandatory reporting around the globe. And so our own reporting and assessment needs to um, adapt to that. We need to recognise that there is more than one way to be a responsible investor, and we should tailor our programmes based around the particular approaches that our signatories take. We need to support better RI ecosystems and other partner groups that we work with. There are some projects that we should be leading and there are other projects that we should be getting behind and amplifying. Uh, And so I think this is very important for us to be a very good partner to work with, but to use our 5,500 signatory base to promote other people's good work. So this is another theme that came out. And then strengthening the whole policy work that we're doing to ensure we're seeing harmonisation, that we're influencing the regulators to better understand the practitioner's needs. And so these are going to be the emphasis for us in the next strategic plan. Probably the next uh, only other element that I would mention is, in addition to sort of better supporting RI ecosystems, also recognising that there's more work to do in the emerging markets. We need to get stronger linkages between the North and the South and between developed and developing markets. And the PRI has got a very important role to play here in making those connections and supporting emerging markets to begin their own journey as responsible investors. And I can say, as I've traveled around the globe a lot in the last two years, there is a very strong level of interest 
in emerging markets to responsible investment, and they want to be connected to the international community. So that's a role that the PRI can play. So there's some of the things that will be made up in our strategy for the next three years, which will be going out to consultation in the next few weeks on, and then we'll sign that off with the board in June. Great. I mean, I think they are. They are, it's, it sounds very sensible, and I think it shows that you talked at the top of the conversation around relevance and making sure that the PRI is always relevant to the signatory, the needs of the signatory base. So it's great to hear about the fact that you've listened. You've listened to signatories, what they need. And, you know, this has become a lot more complicated, right? From the early days of, you know, a small number of signatories, probably very similar in nature in terms of an asset class exposure to now, you know, a global, like you said, a hundred countries um, represented with all very different approaches. So, I mean, it really is fabulous the extent to which you've managed to maintain that relevance going forward. So I very much look forward to the plan coming out and, uh, and particularly about how, you know, we as ELSA can support PRI in its mission. Thank you, Jane. Just uh, watch this space, but we'll be providing some communication out to the signatories very soon on, on the consultation on the strategy. But hopefully we've understood the issues and we've got the right program uh, and uh, we can become even more important and valuable to our signatories in the next phase of our work. And then in terms of your kind of the policy engagement, obviously, You've said that members have articulated the value they place on on PRI's role in that. And I agree, it's really important. And I know that one of the areas that we're looking at, in fact, LSEG and, and PRI are partnering on, is the call to action for governments around the world to adopt the ISSB disclosure standards at pace by 2025. So do you want to talk about a bit about why corporate disclosure is so important from a PRI perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So if we go back to that sort of the the views that I expressed around the balance sheet, I mean, what we know is that, in fact, there's this uh, study, Ocean Tomo study that's been going for the last 40 years or so that looked at the um, S&P 500 companies in the 1970s. And you could see that 80% of the value of companies was tangibles and 20% intangibles in the 1970s. Roll that forward. It's now reversed. When you look at the value, 20% is the tangibles, the sort of obvious balance sheet, and 80% is uh, research and development, uh, social license to operate, brand, employee. It's much broader. So that's the first thing. So then we've now seen an, uh, increasingly voluntary efforts to address how to make better decisions around uh, the balance sheet. And that takes you so far. But in the end, you investors are really looking for comparable data. And we only get that if there is agreed standards around sustainability that enables investors to look company by company, industry by industry, country by country. And so what's really important, I think, development is that we've seen uh, ISSB established and we've seen these voluntary frameworks start to come together. And now uh, those standards are beginning to be issued and we are strongly encouraging countries to adopt the ISSB standards because that will enable investors to properly assess risk and value in companies around the globe and I think will enable improved decision-making and improve outcomes. So we're delighted we've been able to join together in calling countries to adopt the ISSB standards and to encourage investors and companies to start adopting the, the, the reporting 
processes that are, that are now being issued by ISSB. I think it's very exciting. And I also think that, um, you know, everything's connected to everything, but I think we're now starting to see, so TCFD has come into those ISSB, sta- ISSB standards and TNFD uh, in time will no doubt start to come into those ISSB standards as well, which I think is very important because investors increasingly recognise you can't solve the climate issues unless you actually start properly factoring in nature information into your decision making investment decision making as well yeah so there's there's now a framework in which these things can come together i think it's really important as well that the investors and corporates also show support for the adoption of issb because actually like you said everything is connected to everything and actually this is a place and and a kind of a development that if we get this embedded consistently across you know, as many countries and jurisdictions as possible, we we stand a chance of having consistent a consistent kind of language for the financial sector to talk and communicate about sustainability. And effectively, that's the thing that's absent currently. And we really do need that common uh, language. And this is so important because investors are generally global. They're operating across multiple um, jurisdictions. And so, you know, if there is an international standard, you know, that's in place, then that just makes the frictional cost of, of deciding wh- where, you know, where an investor wants to deploy their capital, you know, much, uh, much um, reduced. So I think, yeah, it's one of the things that, uh, again, the PRI plays a really important role is harmonization as much as we can around regulation and around standard setting. So I, c- I couldn't agree with you more, Jane. Great. I think we've uh, we've probably run out of time, David. It's uh, it's been fascinating talking to you, and I'm so excited about PRI's future role. And it's 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 absolutely got a a, a critical role to play going forward. And uh, and long may the success of PRI last. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us today, and uh, good luck for the plan that you are going to be putting out soon. Thanks, Jane. So that's it for this episode. What a fascinating chat that was. Big thanks to David for sparing time to be with us on the LSEG Sustainable Growth Podcast. If you've got questions, comments, or someone you'd like us to talk to, then do get in touch by email at fmt at That's all from me, but watch out for another episode very soon. <laughs>